Welcome to the Return to the Forgotten Path podcast. Join us on this journey to travel to a forgotten pathway that leads to rest and restoration. This podcast is a weekly Bible study of this week's Torah portion, known as a Parsha. It's a weekly reading according to the Jewish annual Torah cycle. Every week, we will have a discussion filled with both historical and cultural viewpoints as it pertains to the return to the forgotten path that is increasingly happening all around the world. We will review and share opinions from the weekly Torah, also known as the five first books of the Bible or the Mosaic Law. We will also do readings from the Hafsorah and the Brit Hadashah, or the New Testament readings. For those who ask, what is the forgotten path? Jeremiah 6.16 puts it like this. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Our podcast seeks to point our listeners to that ancient old path through the study of the Bible from the perspective of the Torah, which is properly translated as instructions. Today's podcast is Shalak. It is found in Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 through chapter 15, verse 41. The half door portion is Joshua chapter 2, verse 1 through 24. And the Brit Shah portion is Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. For those of us joining along in our study, the same Torah portion this week is Shalak Lekha from Numbers 13, 1 through 1541 on Hebrews for Christians. The half Torah is Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through jo- Joshua chapter 2, verse 24. And the Brit Hadashah portion there is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through chapter 4, verse 1. Let's go over a quick summary. The 37th reading from the Torah is called Shalak or Shalak Lekha, an imperative verb, which means send out. The portion is so named from the first few words of the second verse. Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan. Numbers chapter 13, verse 2. The Torah reading tells the tragic story of how the spies returned with a bad report about the land of promise and influenced the congregation of Israel to rebel against the Lord. Thus, God co-signed the generation, or consigned, excuse me, the generation of Moses to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The portion is outlined following this order. The spies are sent into Canaan. They report of the spies' returns. Then the people rebel. Moses intercedes for the people, and an attempted invasion is repulsed. Various offerings are prescribed, penalty for violating the Sabbath, and fringes or phylacteries or tzitzits are commanded. Again, the Haftorah portion 
also covers the spies being sent to Jericho, just like last week, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Let's begin our study. And now the blessing before the Torah study. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of the Torah. Amen. Shalach leka aneshem v'yatoru et aretz kinanin. In English. Send for yourself men or people and let them spy out the land of Canaan. This begins the reading for this week's Torah portion, Shalak or Shalak Lika. All right, so hopping right in. It begins with the story of the spies and their recon mission going to investigate the land of Canaan. And the story is well known. Ten go in, 10 out of 12 go and return with an evil report. Two come back with a good report. The ones with the evil report get punished and they take a lot of people down with them. And the two that were faithful get rewarded. Also a long-term thing, but they, well, we'll touch base on that. Um, before jumping too far ahead, Okay. Did you have anything that you would like to add? Well, interestingly enough, this week's Torah portion and half Torah portion actually are both related to spies. Um, this week's Torah portion, as you mentioned, is the 12 spies, the 10 that bring back an evil report, two that uh, agree and um, bring back a report of faith that Hashem is capable and more than uh, able to give them the land. And then the half Torah portion is also referring to a 40-year period thereafter, or so so uh, we understand, where two spies now go into the city of Jericho, and they are spying, and they are protected in the house of Rahav or Rahab, and in a interesting twist, it is said that these two spies, mm-hmm. um, one is a return spy. Mm-hmm. One is Caleb, or Caleb, uh, who was part of the original 12. And the second is Phineas. And so Caleb, or Caleb, is the same man who originally went with the 12 spies along with Yehoshua, uh, it's the Hebrew for Joshua. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was considered a faithful spy during the first spying mission that we are reading about in Numbers chapter 13 through 15. Um, it is said that some 40 years before, unlike the uh, context of what we read and sometimes determine that Caleb was you know, faithful for no reason or faithful because he just was. Mm. Interestingly enough, the Torah portion in Hebrew 
specifically points to where the distinction of why Caleb and why he is now the spy in both settings is faithful in respect to his reliance and trust, his imunah, um yeah. on Hashem. And so the actual first words, which I read, send for yourselves, shalak leka, is actually not directly um, connected to what most people tend to think. It's not directly connected to what we automatically assume was a spy reconnaissance mission. But specifically, what has been pointed out is that Moshe specifically gave them instructions, and I didn't spend much time until this was brought to my attention, that when Moses commanded them, he specifically gave them specific directions as to where to go and specifically what they were supposed to do. So when they were um, sent out, it says that they were sent out of the south of this of the Negev, the desert or the wilderness. And when they were sent out, they were sent to look up, go to basically to a, a high place and to look upon the land. So instead of it, uh, the context of spying out the land, um, it was more so to look at the land. And the tribes, uh, leader, the tribal leaders or the prince leaders, were really sent with a specific command. And I'm just going to read it in the NIV because it's a little bit different, but it does have the context. So uh, chapter 13, verse 17 reads, when Moses sent them to explore, basically to tour, they were supposed to be tourists. Mm. They were supposed to explore the land of Canaan, go up through the Negev, go up, go up, listen to the directions, mm -hmm. and on into the hill country and see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many, what kind of land do they live in, is it good or bad, what kind of towns do they live in, are they unwalled or fortified, how... Uh, is the soil, is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. Yeah. And so they went up and explored the land. So it's interesting to me when someone pointed out that they were not sent out to be spies because it's a different Hebrew word for the word spies versus the one that is actually... Um, shared here, which is much more of, hey, Laverne wants to go on another one of her Dora the Explorer missions. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. They were supposed to be Dora the Explorers. Go explore. Go. You have, you have a ten day mission to go on ex an exploration trip. Mm -hmm. Come back and tell me what you liked about the the land, what you thought about it, and the context of what they did, and what they brought back was also a place where contrast seems to be very evident in the story. Like sometimes when we come back, we, we remember in the telling and the way they were told to us that 10 of them had a, a good report, two of them, I mean, 10 of them had an evil report, two of them had a good, uh, let's say this again, I said it's three times over now. 10 had an evil report, mm -hmm. two had a good uh, report. Mm -hmm. Say that again. 10 good, no. 10 bad, <laughs> two good. Mm -hmm. This is what happens when you try to do this when you're late at night. Okay. So the 10 bad versus the two good. Where in the scripture does that even come from? Where is that context that we are taking from this that the reports were different? Hmm. I guess it was a reaction to the reports. Ah, 
Yes. And so when we actually read what the the explorers came back saying, the, it seems that all 12 had the same Dora the Explorer report. It re basically reads that chapter 13, verses 26, they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very strong. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The, the, there. the Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. The report was the same. The next hmm. words, verse 30, is from Caleb. Caleb interrupted them. And he called for silence before Moshe and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. This is true. Okay. But the men who had gone up with him said, that was not necessarily, and I, I think when we look at the report versus the conviction, that's, it's two different things. The report was basically an agreed upon thing. All the things that they said before, everyone agreed with. Mm-hmm. Exactly what you asked us to do, door the explore. That's exactly what we saw. What the ten men begin to proceed to say from verse thirty-one to the end of chapter thirteen is not part of the door of the explorer uh, request. Right. So they said this, and I'm reading from the New International Version. But the men who had gone up with him said, "We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are," and they. They spread, um, excuse me, they are strong, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. They are coming up, they are not only, not only did they disagree with him openly, now they're going to go tell, you know, Lashon Hara. Hmm. So now, which one was it? Was the truth? The one that you, the report you said first. Or this line that, you know, well, basically this story that you're now telling. All the people we saw there are of great size. That wasn't what you said before. Mm -hmm. You said there are some descendants of Anak there. Okay. We saw the Nephilim, Nephilim there, Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak came, who, uh, of Anak came from the Nephilim. And we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked at them. We looked the same to them. So this is the, that's the evil report. It is the report that came after that they decided to spread among the Israelites. So that begins the context of where this divergent path, 12 spies go up, 10 bring this evil report after the fact. Mm -hmm. One really speaks, although Joshua agrees with him, but one is the one who's recorded as speaking and that was Caleb. Gotcha. And remember last week we talked about the one who actively does the speaking is, you know, in the, the, the context of Miriam, she was considered like responsible for. Mm -hmm. Kalev is considered responsible for the good report because he speaks the, with conviction, with umanah, faith and trust that we should go up immediately and take possession. Hmm. So you think it was bravery or do you think it was divine inspiration? 
I think it was divine inspiration because the it the context of the story uh goes into more detail in chapter fourteen when the people continue to rebel, and it goes into specifically what Caleb, um, and Caleb did that they did not do. Remember that you know Moses specifically told them. Um, to go up and there were specific instructions as to the way that they should go. And one of the places that they, that was mentioned that they should go to was actually a location, um, that was mentioned in the, the, tra the travel or the traverse of, um, Abraham. And it was the, uh, I think it's the Valley of Esh. Eshkaol, Eshkaol, and that specific place, it says that he, when although it was a group of 12, it specifically says a he, and the sages believe that the he referred there to Kalev. Hmm. So he followed the entire instructions, and also dead set in the middle of them about to leave and do this exploration, we also find that there's a, a one uh scripture specifically um hinting that something has just transpired in the change of Yehoshua or Joshua where his name has not been changed from Hosea meaning salvation to the Lord's salvation um but the replace well the the placement of the yod in front of his name that adding the the name of God before um you could say the root of his name hmm. So God saves. So that was possibly the reason behind the conviction of these two men. One followed the actual instructions and met with the, the, the connection where Hashem explained to him the connection between Abraham having been here and you now having gone through. And it's specifically, um, I believe it's this land of Hebron, that, uh, or Hebron in English, that uh, Caleb um, reaches to that it says that they traveled but he went hmm. they traveled he went mm -hmm. so chapter 14 the people rebel they complain they cry out and then they once again start to show What's in their hearts when the pressure turns on? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. God bless Moses and Aaron. They fall on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. I, you know, I don't know if I would have had that reaction at first with all of this grumbling. So God bless those efforts. I think they also, the reason that, um, I think our separation from experiencing Hashem in a more contextual, real, physical way mm -hmm. is what also causes us to be even more blind to the consequences of our errors. Okay. Um, kind of going back to the, the entire the tribes literally are riled up they're they're spreading rumors now they're now they're 
completely compelled that we're not going, we're going about to die basically mm-hmm. again. And the level of lack of trust, lack of faith that they are expressing is really incomprehensible in light of the, I would say the physical reality but it's also kind of going back to the physical reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. How can you literally, as according to the scripture, have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and put your hand to the plow and then take it off? Why did you put your hand to the plow to begin with it? Did you not experience? Can you say within your own self that you did not experience me? Mm. Um, and why do we as believers struggle with the reality of experiencing God on a moment to moment, day by day, challenge by challenge type of experience. Why, how do we respond? And I'll be honest, I, 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 I struggle and I sometimes used to cry about it because I would cry because of like, why am I so weak in this one area that I don't want to be weak in it anymore? Um, and I think it's because like many of us, again, the context of our heart is expressing itself um, my, I'm saddened by the fact that it, my heart is expressing itself in this way consistently, but I, the fact that I, you know, when you recognize the thing, that's the Holy Spirit also bringing that to your awareness. Mm-hmm. But when you don't recognize the thing, that is also a, a clear indication of how far you are, that you don't, you no longer see your reflection. Okay, and that's, you know, that's what I think is happening with the children of Israel is that they have now drifted so far away that they no longer see how twisted their perspective is, not only of Hashem, but also of themselves. That they want to go back to is they want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to bondage. Which is crazy. When you think about it, just saying it out loud, like, yeah. But they said it out loud and they didn't, they they kept, they not only said it out loud, they shared it with everybody else. Mm Mm-hmm. That they literally decided after all this time we're gonna come. We are so uh, compelled within our hearts to express this desire openly, but then we also want to basically say, "Get out of our way, Moses. We're going back." Pretty much. So of course Moses and Aaron, having been closer and having seen and maintained the connection, they can see the reflection of what's about to go down more than the people that are blind and separated. That makes sense, which is why they were able to react so quickly. Correct, yeah. I would, I would also, uh, you know, think about it from the perspective of when you f- see your child going the wrong way, you know what that looks like. They don't necessarily know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So the Lord's vexed at the people again. How long will they despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses intercedes for the people. From verse 13 to verse 19, he's basically just begging for mercy, trying to save their lives. Everything from the Egyptian hair of it, think that you brought them out of into the midst in your might, and then you killed them all. That's not going to be good PR for you, Lord. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. Pardon these folks. Just as you've forgiven them from Egypt till now. Now, imagine how much madness you've done that you got to come and say, come on, you've seen a lot of stupid things with these guys. What's one more? So, interesting enough, um, like most of our Jewish 
uh, rabbis and teachers that have gone before us that have studied and poured over the scriptures. The, the thing that Moses intercedes here sounds like the 13 attributes of God that we've heard somewhere before. Mm -hmm. And it says that this was actually said before in a prior Torah portion, which is found in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 through 7. That Torah portion reads, The Lord, the Lord God, and it, let me read it in English, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mm -hmm. mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Yep. And this is Exodus 34, verses six through seven. But interestingly enough, the prayer that Moses actually declares this time is not the exact same words. He actually leaves out um, the following. He leaves out uh, two attributes. He leaves out the Lord as the God of mercy and grace. Hmm. And nor did he qualify, uh, the qualifier that the God was the Rav Amet, the father or the, the Rav, I'm oh, sorry. Or a teacher? A teacher of truth. Hmm. So interestingly enough, that those two were left out. And so when you go back and you look at Numbers 14, verse 18, um, the fact that he did left it out, I wonder if that is what is linked to what comes next. Hmm. Um, because with those attributes, um, specifically the one that left out the God of mercy and grace, we realize that the Lord makes a decree in chapters uh, 14, verse 32 through 35, that differs completely from all the other um, declarations that he's made. He's gotten angry with the, the children of Israel before. He's gotten angry with them in regards to the, the sin of the golden calf. Mm -hmm. um, it said it, it, it grieved him in his heart, you know, that, you know, and he had mentioned to Moses at, at that time that he could make a new nation out of him. So mm -hmm. this is not the first time, I guess you can say, this is a mirror or a duplication of a, a similar occurrence, but the, the, the end outcome is not the same. And so with that, we have um, something that transpires, and most people in the um, scriptures specifically link this to the reason that the children of Israel spend the next, well, the scriptures actually say it, the reason that the children of Israel spend the next 40 years in the wilderness, according to the decree of Hashem, um, and why the specific decree of the Lord becomes the, what is it called, the, when you see something, the foretelling mm -hmm. of future uh, days of mourning and judgment for the children of Israel throughout all time. So according to the Midrash, since the sin of the spies occurred on the ninth of the ninth of Av, mm. the Lord decreed that it would be a day of judgment and mourning for all Israel. And all these events are said to have occurred on Tish Ba'av. Mm -hmm. uh, the Lord decreed that the original generation rescued from Egypt would die out in the desert and be deprived from entering the promised land. So anyone that was uh, 20 years and younger, mm -hmm. or below 20, was it? Yeah, same difference. I said the same? No, it says every person 20 years of age and older mm. was fated to die. So anyone that was 20 years is the, the fighting age, right? The age to enter the Israeli army. Mm -hmm. So anyone who was 20 years of age and older was fated to die in the wilderness. So anyone 
younger than 20 years of age was uh, fated to go into the promised land. And also, um, specifically two members of the original uh, 12 spies, which was Yeshua, or Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Jephunneh. Mm. And these two spies who showed Emunah faith in the word of the Lord, Mm -hmm. uh, then the other 10 spies who were immediately killed by a plague that was sent by the Lord. But that was the original decree. But then there's a, a myriad of additional destructions that also transpire thereafter. We have the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians on the 9th of Av. Mm. We have the destruction of the second temple by the Romans on the, uh, on the 9th of Av in 70 AD. We have in 135 AD the Jews rebelling against the Roman rule under the false messiah Simon Barcoba. And that hmm. also happened on the 9th of Av. And they were destroyed by Hadrian in the Battle of Batar. Uh, the Gemara relates that the uh, Roman, offer, Roman officer Turnus Rufus plowed the area of the temple under, uh, uh, on the 9th of Av. According to Maimonides, he added that all the homes in Jerusalem were also plowed under at this time. And then we have in... 1290, the expulsion of the Jews uh, from England also happened on the 9th of Av. The expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1496 also happened on the 9th of Av. And some people also link the beginning of World War One, also being declared on and beginning on the 9th of Av and the 20th, what well, is the 20th century? Mm. It's the 20th, right? No, it's the 21st. 21st century. Mm-hmm. It's 19... No. Not World War One. Oh, World War One. Yes. Twentieth yes, century. Yes. Okay. You would never do this, So not only do the people sit there and say, "Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt," prompting Moses and Aaron to fall on their faces before the entire congregation and assembly, Joshua and Caleb also tear their clothes. And they all tried to sit there and appeal to the congregation of the people of Israel and proclaim the land that we pass through despite our is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord and don't fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. These people were not into motivational talks. Verse 10, all the congregation said, stone them with stones. You are literally trying to kill the messengers. So the glory of the Lord appeared at a tent of meeting to all the people. Now, as Laverne said, "Uh uh-oh, daddy showed up. Mm -hmm. Somebody about to get beat. (laughs) He said, the Lord says to Moses these words, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a greater, a nation greater and stronger than they. So essentially, this all backfired. They started grumbling. They tried to kill them. And Adonai says, you know what? I could just get rid of all of them and start all over again with you. Again. But, yeah, again. This is another time that Hashem has... Repeated the same refrain. But Moses says to the Lord, 
Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people, and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them an oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord, and this is the, the 13 attributes except one being missing. Right. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So Adonai says, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. None of those who despise me shall see it. Yeah. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit. Yeah. Notice he's not saying Yahoshua or Joshua. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to. Remember I told you he went to Hebron? Mm -hmm. He went to and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow, set out towards the desert among the route to the Red Sea. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaint of the grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years or older or more who has counted, who was counted in the census and who was grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephune, and Joshua, son of Nun, Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them into a enjoy the land you have rejected but you your bodies will fall in this desert your children will be shepherds here for 40 years suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert for 40 years one year each of the 40 days you explored the land you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community, which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. Wow. So now, of course, all of this comes down and these guys panic. Everyone's like, uh-oh, we went crazy. We said too much. Before that, before that, the, t the other ten. This is when the plague breaks out from the Lord. Okay. And the, that's when the, they are consumed. The ten other spies. But yes, you you are right. Continue. 
So they right, the ten evil report folks died by plague. Only Joshua and Caleb remain alive. And now Moses tells these words to all the people of Israel. They mourn greatly. They raise up early in the morning. They go to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are. We'll go to the place that the Lord has promised. We have sinned. Moses is like, now you want to transgress the command of the Lord? When that won't succeed, don't go. The Lord's not with you. You guys are going to get struck down before your enemies. The Amalekites and the Canaanites, they're facing you and you shall fall by the sword because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But now, they, you know, they can't stand to hear what's actually going to happen to them. So now they presume to go up to the heights of the hill country because, you know, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord's not there. Moses saying leave the camp. Nobody's with them. There's no spiritual covering at all. But they don't like the punishment. So they're trying to hope that maybe if we do the right thing after we got ourselves cussed out, maybe there's some mercy. Well, verse 45, the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. They got their butts whooped. Mm. Well, here's two things that I thought about. Number one, you mentioned last Two to three Torah portions ago, you mentioned the connection with the forgiving somebody uh, 70 times 7. Right. Yeah. And you said that it is actually um, the number 49 times 10. Uh-huh. And inside of this particular Torah portion, we see that Hashem specifically says that they have rebelled against me these 10 times. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's some significance here regarding the number 10. Why did the number 10 was specific? Like he, he was like saying, okay, one time, not a problem. You don't know, you don't know better. Mm-hmm. Two times, not a problem. I'll forgive you. Three times, even to the 10th time, even when they do this, he says, I'm going to forgive them. Mm-hmm. But this 10th time, you're going you gonna to eat the fruit of your words. Um, he ran out of fingers? <laughs> you're so funny. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the context of which I wonder is, you know, going back to uh, the meanings behind the numbers themselves that sometimes we miss when we see them in scripture. Mm-hmm. And so from what I understood that um, 10 in Gematria um, is significant of a multiple, a multitude of things. Number one, you need 10 to have a minion. So it's like a, this, the agreement. Mm. Um, these 10 times they said the same things. Mm-hmm. It, every single time that the situation came up, they literally said the same exact things. You brought us out here to kill us. Mm-hmm. Um, and you brought us out here to kill us and our children. Mm. I'm like, if, I, I can understand the first time, but mm. it was like, you know, when you don't believe a thing, even when you're experiencing it, and even though it keeps on happening, and you keep looking for some context to make right what your original presumption was. That's what is so interesting to me because for every one of the prior 10, the Lord was like, oh, I, I get where you may have misunderstood. Here, mm-hmm. goes, some, here goes some clarification for you. Right. Oh, I get when you're really hungry. I'm not going to tell you go away blessed. I'm going to give you some food. Or... Oh, I get it. This time you're, you're really thirsty. I'm not going to tell you, 
no, be restored in your mind and not give you the water. I'm going to give you the water too. You know, go thy way. Mm-hmm. But he does, he literally counts 10 times. And I, I was thinking to myself, first of all, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I don't necessarily tend to count people's offenses. But the, it was very specific about these 10 occurrences because of, I, I believe it's because of the way that Hashem responded to them in terms of the need that was the underlying thing here. Whereas for this particular one, there wasn't an underlying need. There was no underlying reason for their declaration. It was something that they had not even seen. What was the underlying need that, that was not being met? Going back to what I was saying before, where all the other occurrences, it was something that was physically, or they felt like was a physical lack, or they needed some reassurance, or they needed to be retrained. What was the need that was compelling their the loss of mind, the loss of faith, the loss of even contrition to stop themselves. I don't know. I mean, fear makes us do some strange stuff, but that is a doozy. Um, I usually it's a doozy. I don't know if it's just that alone. Um, to that end, we also have, uh, going back to what this portion is called, send for yourselves. And so I'm going to go back to connecting how this is um, connected in the Brit Hadashah portion, where the Brit Hadashah specifically, um, the this is in regards to Hebrews chapter 3. So Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. After pointing out the superiority of the Lord, Yeshua, to the service of Moses, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the writer of the book quotes from Psalms 95. So I'm just going to read this. Um, in the context, for those, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter the, enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promises of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And I think there's a, uh, I think that this is a King James version that says, um, you know, unless you fall, unless you fall, you know what I'm talking about, the scripture that I'm referring to? It says, um, uh, let, it says something along the lines of chapter I should really have uh, another version here. Hebrews 3, verse 16. Um, Beware lest you fall. Beware lest you fall. Is this concept of the scripture. So, as Yeshua, <laughs> Ben Nun was the type of Messiah, the successor to Moses who went to the Jordan into the place where Moses could not go, the land of promise, in the same way those who are called to follow Yeshua must enter into the kingdom of faith and not by relying on the spying eyes of the flesh. So it's not based on what we see. You know, so we have to be careful lest we fall. That's what I think this actual King James Version tends to read. All right, so we, we go full circle. We, they've now been declared that they're not entering the promised land. They are not going to enter the rest uh, as Yeshua uh, expresses it, and its connection with Psalms 95, which is 
if you remember when we were um, first entering into studying and uh, observance of the Torah, we used to read Psalms 95 every Shabbat. It's literally called the Sabbath, <laughs> the Psalm for the Sabbath. And it goes like this. Um, oh, I prefer to read. Every time I look at the NIV version, I'm like, I'm so disappointed. It's actually a song that we used to sing um, in gospel choir. And in King James Version, it goes like, Oh, come, let us sing before the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving mm -hmm. and make a joyful noise unto him with song. For the Lord is our great God, our great King above all gods. In his hands is the earth, the sea, and every man. That's how we ended it in our uh, Torah portion. What It is specifically um, said every Shabbat because it refers to not only the greatness of the... Oh, it continues as well. It says, come let us worship and bow down. But it specifically always goes to the specific words of... Um, the testing at, of the children of Israel at Meribah. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did on that day that at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. And I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my way. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And I think, you know, what I, when you read this on a Shabbat, how many of us think about going back to last week's uh, Torah portion where, you know, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, talking about the Torah portion and God's presence with us as us being um, directly connected to people that need to be vigilant about our actual walk of faith. So just as it says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't do what they did in when I was literally amongst them. I was present amongst them. I delivered them. I made a way for every need and every thing, but yet they still re reviled me. They still had contempt for me. So if this is said every Shabbat as we enter into his rest, as a remembrance of what those who did the opposite and will never enter into his rest, we too, as those who are entering in, need to remember our own condition and be aware of it in such a way that we are willing to stay close like Joshua, son of um, Nun, Nun, or Nun pronunciation, mm -hmm. Caleb, Aaron, and Moses, so we can see ourselves and be aware. That's a big one. That's a big one. A lot of times we run around looking at everybody else and not looking at ourselves. That's a big one. That's what this is seemingly saying, you know? Mm -hmm. we're, we're coming in, we're singing joy, come let us sing before the, the Lord, joy of the Lord. But it's like, okay, now that you've done all that, don't get into a hard place and harden your hearts. Don't get to a place where you don't see me as king father and the one who's been protecting you all along don't fall into your own sight in your own you know the words here that says today if you hear his voice don't harden your hearts don't begin to harden your heart to me because you know you would become more or less an example 
of what the children of Israel became, which is a people whose hearts go astray. And they really do not know in your ways. Mm-hmm. That's a tough legacy to give. Yeah. All right, so the Torah portion continues. It doesn't end right there. It continues. And I think it con- the way that it continues, I personally see a connection. I'd, how about you? How, with the f- beginning or the first half of what we've read thus far, do you see the connection with the balance of the Torah portion this week? I see where it's talking about the instructions when it comes to unintentional sins. And part of me thinks it's related to the top because I don't fully believe that the community of Israel contemplated the effect of their words and actions versus the consequence that was going to come their way because of it. Had they stopped to go, wait a minute, what are we saying? What are we doing? In that regard, it feels unintentional, but yet they still deliberately did open their mouth, say it, and try to do so much ridiculous evil behind it. It's kind of hard to go. It was accidental. Yeah. When you listen to them and go, nope, we don't want to listen to them. Get us a king. Then it's like, ah, oh, they keep talking to us. Let's stone them. Like, wait a minute. Yeah. This goes beyond. I didn't know. I was just angry. I guess you could say it's the progression of. Right. Yeah. So maybe it's the progression of even still the. The ten, and it's kind of, I'm, I really would like to, if you have a, any notes here of the count of the ten um, times, the ten times that they have sinned, I really want to know that maybe there is a, a direct link between mm-hmm. the supplementary offerings. But, um, I want to look that one up. Yeah, that does seem like it's interesting, and maybe there's some additional parallels there. So in regards to the supplementary offerings, the first one here that is commanded is a burnt offering, a whole burnt offering that has a Ola offering, a quart of oil, and a quart of wine as a drink offering. And I believe I see that there's a specific name for this. Uh, Let me see if I can find it. But while I'm finding the exact name, you can go to the next mitzvah that is commanded. Well, after that, it speaks about the Sabbath breaker that was stoned. And so, let me catch myself. All right, so, yes, finishing up the thought on the unintentional sin. You know, you should have one instruction for him who does anything unintentionally, whether you're a native among the people of Israel or a sojourner. Now, if you did it and it was intentional, if you meant to do it, if you're blatant about it, that doesn't have any reconciliation, redemption opportunity there. That person is cut off amongst his people because he despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person should be cut off and his, his iniquity shall be on him. So going into the next segment where it talks about the Sabbath breaker, while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, and we're on verse 32 in the English reading Bible. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron, to the entire congregation. They put him in custody. They didn't know what to do with him. So the Lord said to Moses, this man should be put to death. 
all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, on one side, one would think, I'm just getting some sticks. Come on now. All of that wasn't necessary. <laughs> but if you think, what was the purpose of the sticks to go heat up your food? You're still in the period where the Lord's dropping manna from heaven. You don't have to cook. You don't have to gather. You don't have to do any of that on Shabbat. You're still getting this food. And this guy is coming along saying, hey, let me gather some sticks. Let me go make a fire. Let me go cook some food. Let me do everything that I was commanded not to do today. Because I don't have anything else better to do. Well, you know what I just realized when you just said that? I think when somebody rebels in their own heart, kind of going back to what you said before, and what Psalms 95 is talking about is really a rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think when I read it the first time I saw the connection, but you know those people. They really, honestly, they try to push the lever only for the sake to see how far they can push the lever. This is actually happening after the 10 spies have literally, number one, died by the plague. Mm-hmm. Uh, the children of Israel that went up to go battle the Amalekites get slaughtered all the way to, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the city, but well into another city. And then this, both things happen after the context of the Lord already saying that you and your, you and your, your crew, the rest of the Israelites that are 20 years of age and older, are not going to enter as a result of your disobedience, number one, by bringing this report from a 40-day travel or 40-day tour that you did and then decided to disperse throughout the people of Israel with an evil contextual rebellion plan. It's different when you come up and you say, you know, I'm a little afraid. I'm a little afraid. Mm -hmm. What they literally plotted was a plot. Mm. Because if I'm afraid and I people come to me and they say, "I want to know what how how, you know what's going on," and I'm saying, "You know what? I'm you know I'm really fearful." Right. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. What they said was, "We going back. Mm. Who going back with us?" More or less, that's what was going on, and it's the context of rebellion. And so, even after this whole entire rebellion of this report, this rebellious report, you know, and all the things that transpire as a result of this rebellious report, here comes this man and decides, I'm just going to do a little bit more. Mm. I'm just going to be a little bit extra today. Mm-hmm. And I literally, I, I feel like the more that I, the first time I heard this, I was like, man, he really got, he got the blunt, the brunt of like doing nonsense. Yes, you know, he, he got stoned to death for doing nonsense. But I think about it from the perspective of in everything that just went down, that's what you want to do? Why now do you want to do this? Why risk all of that? Why now what? are you willing to put yourself out there? Because it's got to be like that little bit of like, you know what? I'm going to be passive aggressive about this whole entire thing. You say not do it. I'm going to be the only one that's going to be like, why not? Hmm. And I feel like it's the passive aggressiveness of the 
presumptuous sin. I think that's what it's called in the King James Version. But the the um, Safari called it the rebellious. It's, it's, it's like it's planned. In other words, in your own heart, you decided I'm not going to obey. Right, it's premeditated. It's pre- yes, I, I literally am saying the reason that he decided to go out and do this is because I just didn't want to do it, which you said. Hmm. There was no other reason. What, am I, what really am I cooking today? I get you. I just don't want to do what you said. Well, that's exactly how this part should end with the next section. Speaking of the tassels on the garments, better known as zit zit. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generation and to put a cord of blue on a tassel of each corner. And... You really jumped on that one. Oh. I'm listening to how you connected thoughts. Yeah, well, here's the thing. So, hold on. Let me catch the last verse. It shall be a tassel for you to look at. And remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So now you've got the people that are rebellion, rebelling, trying to incite a rebellion. You got the Sabbath breaker that was executed. You got... Joshua and Caleb, that were the only ones that said, hey, hey, hold on, wait a minute, you guys got this all wrong. The reason why these 10 spokespeople were able to give this evil report and the guy was able to pick up the sticks on the Shabbat because they took their eyes off the promises of God and they just forgot who they were dealing with. They forgot that this is the same God who protected and kept them while they were going through Egypt as they drowned Pharaoh's army as... They stayed warm in the desert with a pillar of fire. How they stayed cool during the heat of the day because there was a whole cloud over them. Mm -hmm. They took their eyes off the promise. They forgot who they were dealing with. And you would think it's ridiculous to do such a thing when it's physically apparent in front of you. But how many times do we take things for granted that we see all the time? Yeah, your spouse for one. Your spouses, cars, jobs, whatever it is that you think that you get to every day and you think like, man, okay, it's, it's been true. here already. It's true. And listen, listen, if my husband's not willing to, you know, speak the truth and shame the devil, I will. Um, because honestly, if you really do remember the good thing that you have in your spouse, do you remember when you're angry? Do you remember mm-hmm. when you disagree with them? Mm-mm. What what type of stuff comes out of your spirit? Mm. When you don't like what they say, well, when you are irritated and your your nerves have been rubbed raw, mm. what is that looking like? Is that looking like honor? Is that looking like respect? No. Is that looking like love? No. And so the truth of the matter is, we all need to be um, a little bit more aware of how we are physically responding to that same type of stimuli because if we're doing it with the people that, you know, that it's amongst us, how much more do you really think that we're doing that with Hashem? Exactly. I, I'm, you know, if Yeshua gave the example that, you know, you can't love God more than the brother that you can see him. And, and I am putting that in a, a reverse psychology set way because he didn't say it in exactly those same words. But, 
He's saying, how could you love mm-hmm. God more? The one who you cannot see and the brother that you can see, you have, you know, disregard, disdained for, you know, or hatred towards. So I, I really do feel that there is scriptural context here mm. for what somebody would say is... Um, uh, uh, what is it called again? Where two or three witnesses are can be built upon to mm-hmm. establish a pattern here. So we now have this secondary witness within this second, same exact Torah portion, where Hashem is now saying, "You guys took your eyes off the prize. We've been saying it all along that the reason that Yehoshua and Caleb, mm-hmm. and now you know, then Moses and Aaron, the reason that they dropped to their needs and the whole congregation didn't do, do the drop." Mm-hmm. is because they had proximity in terms of their closeness. They, they mm-hmm. were drawn into his presence and they knew enough of him to know this is not going to be good if you continue with this. Gotcha. And it's different when you take your eyes off of and you're just compelled by what you are feeling at the moment. Feeling at the moment. Mm-hmm. You're not looking at what this is really, the outcome of this is going to be. This is... Very, very true. And so, you know what I, I'm going to bring up real quickly? And I mentioned the thing about your spouse. Yeah. Um, the, the, the thing that I was thinking about, and it's interesting enough, it was in part of uh, this past two weeks where uh, I was looking at a conference called Marriage Made Easy. And one of the speakers in one of the conferences, because I was looking at some old conferences, so back in before pre-pandemic stage, where one of the speakers basically said, don't allow the enemy to, uh, to convict you, to compel you to speak evil against your spouse and to get you into agreement with him. So whatever is going on mm-hmm. um, with your spouse, go to the root and not to the accomplice was another person's perspective. Go to the root. Stop blaming the accomplice. Hmm. So if if your spouse is being used by Hash, by the enemy, pray that the Hashem would silence the hand of the enemy off of them. Even though it's their will that may be allowing them to go along with, you pray for their restoration. You pray for their um, the rightness of their own mind, you, the restoration of their mind. You pray that their soul would be healed, that their eyes would be open. You pray that the the one who loves them and gave his life for them would compel them to, in love, Mm. to come back. Rather than what we tend to do, and I'll be honest, in our physical, I would prefer at the moment when I'm irritated Mm. to fuss and to cuss. Mm. And the fuss and the cuss oftentimes doesn't sound like a fuss or a cuss. It doesn't sound like I'm literally using words to break down the situation, but it could be just the energy of the argument, the Mm. energy of the, I I can't even say the words. It's just like, it's more than the words, but the energy that you're taking can be harmful. And even in that way, we can be fussing and cutting Mm. and breaking our partners down. And letting the evil one in. Mm-hmm. 
this is true. From your words, you'll be justified, and with those words, you'll be condemned. So we gotta be mindful on using those words in good order, because you know they can hurt ourselves, they can hurt other people, and sometimes, like you said, you you just think, I'm just venting, just blowing off steam, and lots of damage can be done. So. And so, you know, as we're learning from our spiritual relationship, I think we, too, have to check ourselves, you know. Always. Check ourselves. So, okay, um, there's one more piece that we haven't touched on out of the mitzvahs. You, you got to the uh, component here where we were talking about the tzitzit and the, the, that Hashem specifically called that mitzvah for the purpose of having a physical... Um, remembrance yeah. and it's a physical remembrance so we're going to just quickly touch on how is it a physical remembrance what specifically about a zitzit connects to a physical remembrance of the commands okay uh-huh. so for those of us who are kind of new to what these fringes are the portion of Torah also gives a commandment regarding zitzit or fringes on Numbers chapter 15 verses 38 it's stated also as Deuteronomy 22, verse 12. It's also found in the Brit Hadashah in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, Matthew chapter 14, verse 36, and Matthew 23, verse 5. The Zitzit has a numerical value of 600 in its Mishnaic spelling, which adds another Yod to the Torah spelling, which when combined with the five knots of eight threads, yield a total of 613. So if you kind of lost at to, as a, to what I just said, so um, the word zit, zit is zadi, yud, zadi, tav. So the numerical value of zadi, yud, zadi, tav is supposedly the numerical value of 600. And how did we get that? 400 plus um, 10 plus 90 plus 10 plus 90. That's the Mishnaic spelling. Zadi, Yud, Zadi, Yud, Tav equals 600. And then there's five knots in the... Um, zit zit. Okay. And it is built on eight threads. The shamash being the longest. And the shamash is the, the, the blue thread or the teklit thread. So let me say this again. The Mishnaic spelling is zadi yud zadi yud tav equaling 600. The Torah spelling is Zadi Yud Zadi Tav, which is 590. All right. So the Taklit or the blue is said to represent the heavenly kingdom. Anytime you see the color of the sky or the color blue, it's specifically reckoning or referencing symbolically the kingdom of God being, you know, not of this world, heavenly kingdom. And we have also in the five knots, the five being a gematria for grace. And we see grace on our tzitzit, and then we see the 600 mitzvahs. And with the 600 plus the, the eight strings, plus the five knots, we have 615, which stands for all the mitzvot within the Torah. 
I hope that that is understood. If you want to spend some more time, there is a nice little diagram on the HebrewForChristians.com site for the Torah portion, Shalak Lekha. So now we have this physical representation for men to remember. What about women? What is our physical representation for us to remember the 613? Evidently, it's your spouses. <laughs> so, we all, so women always have to get married, huh? Mm. Mm. Well, interestingly enough, the, the Brit Hadashah and the Haftorah portion are actually um, not dispelling what my husband just said. Uh, it's actually confirming it. It says that when Rahav, the house of Rahav, um, decided to hide the... Um, the two spies, it is said she was, um, at the time, before, at the meeting, she was considered an Isha Zona, or a prostitute. And her house might have been some sort of inn for travelers. But when she then decided to come into agreement, or you can say uh, covering under the word of the spies to protect her and her family, the spies' agreement with Rahab literally renamed her in the context of the scripture. So whereas this woman, Rahab, was originally known as an Isha Zona, or what we translate as a prostitute, she later becomes the, the mother of the faithful because she becomes, um, let me read it right here. Rakav and her whole family were preserved according to the promise of the spies. Going back to the zizit, the word of the spies. They are literally carrying the word as the representation. And she was incorporated among the Jewish people. She afterward becomes the wife of Salmon, a prince of the tribe of Judah. And though some believe this was none other than Yehoshua ben Nun himself, According to the genealogy of Matthew, Rahav, Rahav, was the mother of Boaz, who married Ruth, and was therefore the great-grandmother of King David. Our Messiah Yeshua himself descended from David's line, so Rahav is in the lineage of Messiah himself. Truly a remarkable Eshkayil. She becomes known now as the woman of valor. Hmm. So by taking hold of the Zitzit. She took hold of the promise. Did you see that? Did you see that connection? Mm. So you're not wrong. You were being you know, facetious, but she literally took hold of the promise and became a set kail, a woman of valor. And the Brit Hadashah echoes this um, in Hebrews, as I read before, and through the context of the Psalms. And so what we are taking into uh, our relationship with Hashem when we come into his presence is recognizing that we too, you know, what's the right, there's a scripture that we too like sheep, sheep have gone astray. astray. We too like sheep have gone astray, each to their own path, but there's a but for us. Hmm. And I, I, if we go into the scripture, I know that you tend to be very good at uh, recalling scripture. Um, when we recognize that 
it's not by our might that we are being saved. It's not by our goodness that we um, are being saved, but it's by the context of what is the promises that we've grabbed hold, we have grabbed a hold to. And that is what has brought us to turn aside from our evil ways and to no longer stray based on the context of our hearts. And so I'm just going to read real quickly to end, unless you have something else to add, um, for this Torah portion this week. The Because um, this was actually one of uh, the scriptures that we had given to our children when they were first... I guess they could first talk. All we like sheep have gone astray. Um, it was considered uh, the ABCs of faith, I guess. It's like A, all we like sheep have gone astray. B, be kind one to another. So C, children obey your parents for this is the right thing to do. D, do not worry for it, for it only leads to harm. So let me actually read where this comes from. It's coming from Isaiah 53. Verse 6. And so, if you don't mind, RJ, if you don't, can you read that? Isaiah 53, verse 6. Let's see. Isaiah 53, verse 6. Let's see what I can find quickly. Um. You said it pretty well. The NIV has put it. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we know this as the description of the Messiah. For he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering to sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with transgressors, transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So you and I literally grabbed hold mm. to the promise keeper, to the promise, and by virtue of him, we've been made clean. By virtue of what he suffered and has provided to us. We too, like Rachav, um, a woman of, you know, necessarily ill, was it ill repute, mm -hmm. have now become men and women of valor mm. by virtue of this hold, this promise that we hold fast to. And so... I just want to compel and to encourage uh, each one of, you know, Hashem's kids to keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the Torah. Keep your eyes on his instructions because it really is the means by which we are capable of 
first of all, discerning, mm-hmm. and then secondly, becoming aware and, and, and seeing the reflection and being drawn into his presence to know when we're going astray. The fact that we now know, we can actually see it, means that we're close. Mm. Whereas for the children of Israel, as we saw, the fact that they didn't see it, they didn't see Papa was home mm. when they were acting the fool, um, was because they were that far away. Mm. So Something keep studying. Do. Keep studying. Indeed. Shalom. Shalom. So as we conclude this podcast episode, we always encourage those that are listening to like, share, subscribe, and continue the dialogue with us. By all means, please feel free to share any of these sessions with anyone within your circle and those that you meet. May we all be enlightened by our study together and learning of the world. And to reach us, our website is return.rest and email is call to the number two at return.rest. So by all means, send your questions, your comments, your thoughts. Let's see what we can do to keep making this something of great value to each other. And as we close, we'll close with the Eskayim prayer. Eskayim he. It is a tree of life to those who take hold of it, and those who support it are praiseworthy. Its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. Bring us back, Lord, to you, and we shall come, renew our days as of old. Shalom, y'all. This Torah portion is Korach. The scriptures for this Torah portion comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 16, verse 1 through 18, verse 32. The Haftarah is from 1 Samuel chapter 11, 14 through 12, 22. And the Gospel from the book of John chapter 19, verses 1 through 17. For those of us joining us and study through HebrewForChristians.com, the Brit Hadashah portion is Romans chapter 13, chapter, excuse me, verse 1 through 7. A summary of this portion Korach was the name of a prominent Levite. It's also the name of this 38th reading from the Torah. It comes from the first verse of this reading, which says, Now Korah, the son of Ishar, took action. This week's Torah reading tells the story of how Korah led an unsuccessful rebellion against Moses and Aaron. After thwarting the insurrection, God confirms Aaron in the priesthood and provides additional legislation regarding priestly and Levitical privileges and responsibilities. So I'll hop in right into this one. So the big news in this portion revolves around the 
imminent rebellion that starts this conversation, but there's so much more here than meets the eye. We, would, we recognize, obviously, that while Korak was trying to assert independence outside of the role that he was given, there's so much more than what seems like a simple matter of revolt and rebellion. And what would you like to add there? Well, to kind of bring in the continuation of last week's Torah portion, which is the sin of the ten spies and now this rebellion, um, one of the things that oftentimes comes to mind is, um, did this happen in the timeline as it's written? Number one, that comes to my mind. And then secondly, even if it does happen, because the like, <laughs> first thing that comes to my mind when they, this happens, because I'm like, did people just die? You guys were just defeated um, in your attempts to go headlong in picking your own quote-unquote leaders. Uh, that was the complaint. We're going to pick our own leaders and go back to Egypt. So this Torah portion is you assert yourself highly above us. You shouldn't be doing that. You're pulling the wool over people's eyes. How quickly do they either A, forget or this is not exactly written in the timeline as we are reading it. So I bring that up because um, I was recognizing that last time that we met, we discussed the Torah portion um, and the ten, uh, the 10 spies and the sin of the 10 spies and the Lord responds these 10 times, have you sinned before me? And we were supposed to recount what those 10 sins were. And so according to um, a website that I found online, the 10 sins according to um, the, thank you, the 10 sins and the 10 ways that uh, Israel sins against Hashem is generally through their complaints as this was recorded in Numbers chapter 14 verse 22. So when the Lord says, you tested me these 10 times, the following are the 10. Number one at the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 14, verse 11 through 12. The second is at Mara, Exodus 15, verse 23. The third time is in the wilderness of Sin, Sin, Exodus 16, verse 2. Um, and then there was a, a second time, which is the number four in the wilderness of sin, Exodus 16, verse 27. And then we have at Rephidim, Exodus 17, 1 through 2. And then the seventh time is at Horeb, Exodus 32. The eighth time is at Tabera and Numbers 11, 1 through 3. The ninth time is at Kiboth Hatava in Numbers 11, verses 4 through 34. And the 10th time is at Kadesh, Barnum, uh, which is number 14, 1 through 3. The challenge that I, um, I have, I'm going to put before you is, did these 10 times happen in the first year or first two years after the Exodus? Or is this the 10 times that actually happened during the 40 years? And this declaration in Numbers 14.22 was God actually declaring a thing from the beginning. 
All right, so what are your thoughts? Was this all within a two-year span of, I can't believe they're doing this over and over again, or was this elongated over 40 whole years well, in the wilderness? I'm going to say from my studies that I've been looking into a lot of this, and it does seem like what Hashem declared in the first year and a half, within Numbers 14, 22, this is about a, about a year or so, about a year and three months since the, the spies have gone into the land and they spied it out. And if you count 40 days for their time and that they traveled throughout the land and then they coming back and giving the evil report. And then a, you could say maybe up to a month uh, has transpired between them returning and causing all of this ruckus and rebellion amongst the people. So you can now look at, okay, now it's been about uh, at least about a year, and close to a year and six months. They've been out of Egypt, and the Lord declares that these ten times you've rebelled against me. The rabbis teach that those ten times are definitive, and it is definitive of all of the times that the children of Israel rebelled or complained or basically sinned against Hashem. Interestingly enough, um, uh, the, the, the guilt of the golden calf here is not necessarily um, even denoted as one of the bigger of the sins, but it, it is mentioned in Exodus uh, 16 verse 20 and Exodus 16 verse 27. Which I think is very noteworthy because sometimes when you're looking at who's counting the, the, these 10 times, what these 10 times represent is very important. And so I don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time on this, but I wanted to kind of just quickly look at the 10 times because over the next few weeks, you're going to find that the theme of rebellion comes up a lot. And I do believe that this theme of rebellion and the, the act of mercy... And then the act of cleansing and then the acts of offerings are all interdispersed, but they're very much related to exactly those 10 times that Hashem was referring to. And when I did a, a, another study on the timeline of the wilderness, the 10 times sometimes are not necessarily ha even happening in the first year and a half. So it is very, it, it's very odd that a lot of this is becoming... Uh, known to us as in the I know this is I'm kind of sounding like I'm confusing the whole entire thing but the 10 times actually did happen if you ask me my opinion they actually did happen within the first year and a half and that they are indicative of the times that they continue to happen during their 38 plus years wandering in the wilderness so they are definitive and they're not the only times that they sinned during the 40-year journey in the wilderness. And there are some studies in, in regards to, was it actually 40 years or was it 41 years? Because this declaration by Hashem happens after a year and a few months. So was it 40 plus the one? And no, according to Joshua... It is exactly 40 years. So it, it, it more or less, someone put it like this, Hashem declared the 
uh, punishment to have been inclusive of time already served then because they had been spending a year or so already within the wilderness so uh, that that was at that was they reduced the total amount of time that they would spend because it literally according to Joshua um, they actually went into the land in the 40th year all right mm -hmm. so um, I'm just going to read Exodus chapter 16, verse 20, and then we can continue with the rebellion of Korah. So in Exodus chapter 16, verse 20 and verse 27, which are two recorded uh, rebellions uh, by Hashem. So 16 verses 20, it says, but they did not listen to Moses and some left part of it until morning and bred worms and became foul and Moses was angry with them. So this is referring to manna and not um, picking up the manna on Shabbat. Mm -hmm. And Exodus 16 verse 27 reads, and it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And so some people recorded this as two separate types of sins itself so the fact that they actually tried to store up what should have only been uh for one day mm -hmm. and then the second is that they didn't honor the sabbath and observe it with in regards to the to the manna uh and they actually still went out to gather the mm -hmm. manna and it's important that this actually comes up again if you recall uh over the next few weeks this act of observance of the sabbath happens again and i think it happened at the end of shalak as well where a man goes out to gather sticks right so it's interesting that these 10 times if you if you're going to kind of understand what's happening in terms of the rebellions as we continue to move forward what are these rebellions really connected to seems to be these 10 times in 10 ways that is that israel continues to sin before hashem all right so if you want to go back through each one of them, uh, again, you can find the, the list. The list differs uh, somewhat between who uh, writes it, but uh, I do believe they have the same commonality uh, in the types of ways that the rebellion and the um, testing of God, as well as the complaining of the people, uh, occurred in that first year and then throughout the 40-year journey. Okay, so let's see if we find the pattern in this specific revolt and see if that ties into one of these categories of the 10 ways that the congregation of Israel tested Adonai. Okay. So the portion begins in chapter 16, verse 1, and we're just going to read the first couple of verses. We'll read the first five verses. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Zatan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pelet, sons of Reuben, took men. They rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. 
Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. I'm going to read 6 and 7 because I think this is going to also come back into a further conversation. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. So those are the first seven verses. And just to reiterate, you've got Aaron and his sons that serve as the priests. The other Levites are not directly Aaron's sons. They're other members within the clan. Right. And so they help to serve in the temple, the Mishkan, the meeting place, but they're not the priests that are sacrificing and petitioning Hashem on behalf of the people. Everyone has a different role to play. So Korach and Datan and Abiram said, you know what? We don't like the jobs we've got. We want to do something else. We want your job. And so that's where they came up to Aaron and Moses and says, hey, look, you guys got us playing in the minor leagues. We want to be in the major leagues. We want a promotion. We need to step up. You guys have gone too far. And Moses is like, okay, I'm not going to get into this conversation with you guys. We won't let the Lord deal with it. So take the censers, put the fire in them tomorrow, and then we'll see who Adonai chooses. Now, when we're thinking about the 10 different ways that Israel tested Adonai, which one of those 10 does this look like it fits the best within? Um, well, it seems that they're judging um, who the Lord has chosen in this particular instance. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it came up multiple times, but at the Red Sea... Um, I think that was one of them where you brought us out <coughs> to destroy us. Mm -hmm. um, that's one, but that complaint is continuous. So I think they, they complained against Moses multiple times and, and Aaron multiple times in terms of their leadership. But the, uh, the thing that initiated it may have been hunger or it may have been thirst or it may have been a lack of what they considered the good times, you know, the the meat that we ate, you know, in Egypt or the, this manna that we have to eat every single day. I mean, you know, talk about not being grateful or the fact that we are not um, working under the same whip. Why do we have to obey you? Mm -hmm. And I think those things showed up multiple times in all of these uh, prior 10 sins. So when Moses commanded them, like in Exodus 16, verse 2, don't hold the manna for more than a day. It, it'll be, you know, take only the portion for today. Mm -hmm. And they did not listen and they turned into worms. It's just, again, it's a form of rebellion because they wanted to be self-sufficient and do for themselves. Um, same thing with um, the Shabbat store up this for, you know, take the two, double portion on uh, 
that doesn't must be a Friday, but the sixth day mm-hmm. and store it for the store it up and make sure that you have enough for the seventh. I think there's a, a willingness to follow the leadership that Hashem has given and the commands He has given through Moses' servant. Mm. Okay. Well, for those who don't know how this story ends, in short, it ends horribly for the rebellious ones. The, at the end of the day, every man, this is verse 18, every man took a censer, put fire in them, laid incense on them, and stood at the entrance of the tent of meetings with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meetings, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Verse 20, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them on their, on, in a moment. Excuse me. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will he be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. Okay. And if you don't know what happens next, well, pause and wait and find out just now. <coughs> if you want to understand what's been going on thus far with Korak, Korak was a cousin of Moses who rationalized that he should be the head of the entire clan instead of his cousin, Eliphaz, um, since he was the firstborn of Kohath's second son, whereas Eliphaz was not even the firstborn son. According to the tradition, Korak was accustomed to power because in Egypt, he preferred the old order of the primogenitor laws. Um, the Midrash states that he gained his great wealth by discovering some of the treasures that Joseph had hidden in Egypt, which he took for himself. It is possible that he served as a liaison with the Egyptian royalty and helped organize the taskmasters. Indeed, Korak appeared to have lived as a prince back in Egypt. So at any rate, here is a condensed genealogy. So Levi had three sons. He had Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Gershon had two sons, Libni and Shimei. Kohath had uh, four sons, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Amram, you may be familiar with, that is the father of Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. Ezekhar is the father of Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. Uziel is the father of Mishiel, Elzphan, and Sitri. So the clan leader for the Uziel family uh, was Elzephar. The clan leader for the Issachar family was Kurak, and the priesthood was given to Aaron for the clan, I guess you could say, of Amram. But under the higher leader, you could say the Gershon or the Gershonites, Eliphaz was given the ultimate clan leadership. Mm-hmm. And so 
that condensed genealogy of who should lead is seemingly the undercurrent for what Korak is arguing. He says, my father was one of the four brothers, as it says, and the sons of Kahat, Amram, Ishar, and Hebron, and Uziel. And as for Amram, the firstborn, his son was Aaron and attained, his, attained to greatness and Moses to royalty. Who then should rightly take the next office? Is it not the next in line? Now I, being the son of his heart, should be right, should by right be the leader of the Kohathites. Yet Moses appointed the son of Uziel. Shall the son of, your, of the youngest of my father's brothers be superior to me? Behold, I will dispute this decision and put to naught all that has been arranged by him. And then Korach's co-conspirators seem to be two brothers named Dathan and Abiram. And they are from the tribe of Reuben. And if you recall, Israel's firstborn son is Reuben. And so by that lot, traditionally the firstborn son was supposed to obtain the leadership of the entire people. However, According to Yaakov, when he blessed the sons of Israel, the leadership position of being the firstborn and the leadership of the entire clan was given away or taken away from the Reubenites and given unto um, Judah. At least that's what is recorded in the blessings back in Exodus. So... Since traditionally the firstborn son obtained the leadership of the people, these tribal leaders were, would have resented Moses' leadership of Israel. The parsha begins with Korah and the 250 leaders of Israel confronting Moses and Aaron regarding this particular thing. You have gone too far, literally too much for you. Why do you raise yourself above the congregation of the Lord? Um, and to establish his credibility, Moses literally puts the words of Korach and Dathan and Abiram to the test. Uh, Moses then called for them and they refused to meet with him. Moreover, this is Dathan and Abiram. Moreover, they sent messages that accused Moses of deceiving the people and pulling the wool over their eyes. And so when the following morning came and Korach and the 250 leaders appeared before the children of Israel, before the Mishkan with their fire pans, ready to offer the incense, the whole assembly of Israel stood nearby and watched the, the power encounter unfold. So here's how it all ends. So they all the congregation got away from, this is verse 27, so they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Datan, and Abiram, and Datan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. 
And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. So now you look at these folks, they rebel, they come back before the Lord, the Lord finishes them off in spectacular fashion. And it seems that the entire congregation of Israel did not get the object lesson here because they started running and screaming, saying, lest the earth swallow us up. If the beginning of this conversation this morning was get away from those guys that did the wrong so you don't get punished with them and they get punished, why then would you two consider that you're going to be part of the punishment? Was it just a fearful sight and you thought, oh my gosh, I'm too close to it, but the earth already closed up? However, as a result of the... Um you can say the insurrection of fear that took hold of the congregation of Israel at the destruction of uh, Korach, uh, Dithan, and Abiram, a plague then breaks forth. And the, pra- the plague kills 14,700 Israelites who die because of the plague not including the death of those involved in the initial rebellion of Korak. The plague is only stilled by the act of Aaron uh, taking the, a firepan with Kepteret and bringing it into the midst of the congregation to make atonement for them. Um, and noteworthy here is that this was not part of the original instructed use for the Kepteret. So, just to recap, the people see this thing occur. These folks rebel. The Lord says, I'm going to deal with them. He deals with them. The next day, all the congregation grumbles against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And now, this is verse 41 from verse 41. Adonai's had enough. He gets to Moses and verse 45 says, get away from the midst of this congregation I may, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Moses says to Aaron, take your censer, put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So now if we go all the way back to the first. What's the word I'm looking for? The time the instructions weren't followed completely, where Aaron's two sons light this strange fire and they die. Over and over again, we're seeing the same situation. Somebody does something out of alignment with instructions. There's a consequence for it. And people failing to understand what their role in this consequence is choose to go well i guess i'm ruined too and the first couple times is a benevolent god that does not consume them but moses has pled on their behalf each and every time this last one the plague has already begun even as moses is speaking the lord is just like i've had enough with all of this and he just starts killing folks and if aaron doesn't go light this fire get in the midst of the people and put this sacrificial offering 
in the midst, they would have all been dead. 14,700 additional people died because they couldn't stop grumbling about what they saw was wrong and should have recognized as, you know what, that was an error. The decision has been made. Let's move on with our lives. They want to take it further and almost 15,000 more people died because you couldn't just take the hard whoop and go, okay, I see the mistake. Shut up and keep moving. Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly enough, the Hathor uh, portion is based on um, a similar change of leadership um, time period. This, however, is based on the change of leadership that happens when Samuel is anointing Saul as the first king of Israel. And if you recall it, how it disappointed Samuel that the people desired a king to be over Israel since the Lord had been king over them from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, Samuel uh, is descendant of a Koath. A Koathite is another way of saying it. Gathered the people of Israel to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. And there recounted their history as a people from the time of the patriarchs up to the present time. And when Nakash, the Ammonite, had threatened Israel with bondage, in response to this threat, Israel demanded a king to lead them. And Samuel told the people that their present condition was a result of their disobedience to the Lord by worshiping idols and refusing him as their rightful king. And so I find that what you're saying right there is very... um, directly aligned in terms of okay what is this these 10 times you know what Hashem is saying when we looked at Shalak Lakav last week and the last of the 10 times was the the sin of the spies the 10 spies most people think that this the sin was really the act of them being afraid um it is not them being afraid it's what they actually attested to with their willingness to rebel what they were attesting to is that we don't want you to lead we don't want your leadership we don't want your governance we don't want you to have that place over us we want to go back <laughs> literally they said let us appoint ourselves our own leaders let's go back to Egypt it was better for us to have been under um, the bondage of Egypt than to maintain this leader and this leadership style or this leadership government. And I think when you see here in Korak, what Korak really is saying and what this generation is saying is more or less one and the same. We don't want your style. We don't want your form of leadership. Um, One study that I did said that what he was also attesting to was not only the um, you know, the, the form of leadership, meaning the who is in leadership, but also the what of leadership. What form of ministry or faith is this going to be? You know, who, who is the defining guidance system uh, uh, or the central theme in our faith? Is it going to be, you know, this unknown uh, Hashem uh, to them 
because they're like, oh no, he is the God, but he is not necessarily the God that necessarily gets involved. As it's you that keeps on getting yourself involved. You're the problem here. You're the person that's changing our destiny. And as a result of that, you need to stop pulling the wool over people's eyes and playing games with us. You're doing this. You're causing these things to happen. And I think what at its central theme, it is also people not recognizing that there is a kingdom way and there's a kingdom law and there is a king over the kingdom. And that their unwillingness to recognize and to obey and submit to that is what's causing these acts of rebellion. That's causing these acts of uh, let me try it my own way. Let me design my own system. Um, let me uh, cut a cock my own form of religion. Hmm. So that's going to bring up another question I have. But I'm going to read uh, from chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one for each father's house, and from all their chiefs, according to their father's house, 12 staffs. Write each man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses speak spoke to the people of Israel, and all their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs, and Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. On the next day Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and he looked, and each man took his staff. Now, I'm going to read verse 12 and 13, because I think this is going to be a prelude to my follow-up question and help to understand where we're We've been thinking on this. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? So this chapter begins with, I'm going to end the grumbling. The Lord says, I'm going to end this grumbling. We're going to sit there and once and for all just cement with another visual reference uh uh, I forgot the other phrase, that, an object lesson, who I've put in place to do this task. Everybody but their sticks, Arizona grows almonds, ta-da, that's my guy. They don't sit there and say, okay, we've all got our appointed place. Everyone do your job. I turn on the headlights. I wash the driveway. I open the windows. They go into straight panic and go, we all perish, we are undone, we are all undone. What is it about this governance with the Lord and his appointed people that seems so out of character versus the being under Pharaoh's authority, which you would think is harsher, more rigorous, less 
understanding that's driving this congregation into absolute panic. Hmm. Well, there's a scripture that comes to mind, but I don't know if we have time to to go into it. Uh, the Bible says, you know, the spiritual things are spiritually discerned, but carnal things, are, or the carnal things are carnally minded. And I believe that what is happening every single time that Hashem shows his hand or he, he, he expresses his, the supernatural within the natural world, it is mind-blowing to the carnal-minded. And it is very declarative that they have been accustomed to the trickery of mankind mm. um, and the way that we control one another through governance, through power, through force, that when Hashem does, you know, the Bible says that God uses the, the simple things to confound the wise. And when God shows through very simple measures what he has declared from the beginning and they, mankind can see it, they're silenced in such a way it, that it is frightening to them because they cannot undo it. They cannot fathom it. They cannot even plan or, what's the right word, manipulate it. And I think that's what causes them to run in horror because it's at their own image, their own reflection of their folly Hmm. that causes them to run away in horror. Because, oh my goodness, I thought that this would work. And it does not. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I get that. You know, it's that hard look at yourself in the mirror where you can't dispute the truth of what's happening because you can blame when you've got an earthly dictator or some other force to rule on you. You can always say it's their fault. They're evil. They're mean. They're this, they're that. Man, if I could do it my way, da 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 da. But when it's just you and God and everything's laid bare and you have literally nothing else to blame, nowhere else to go, you're forced to sit there and have to take stock of your own life and that lack of guilt to transfer is what's the bigger concern. So yeah, okay. So I think this was um, a very good conversation today on Korok. Uh, sometimes people like to make it as just simply everyone could stay in their lane and disaster would have been averted. But sometimes, many times, what is the root cause behind why we have this dissatisfaction, displeasure, or willingness to test the waters, as it were, is because there's something deeply dissatisfying within us that we didn't answer, resolve. And then you end up doing things that have ripple effect consequences that you didn't consider. I'm sure if Korak had realized that his conversation at the beginning of this portion would have led to the death of himself and his family, along with all the other people that he went with, he would have sucked it up and be like, it's not worth it. Even if I quote unquote got the job, was is it worth it for me to have all these people die? You know, sometimes we don't we don't consider the consequences of the actions when we just say, oh, I want what I want because I want it. 
And then when you look back and realize what that's going to encounter, what that really is going to take, it's just not worth it. So before we sign off, anything else that you wanted to add for this one? Only that the sons of Korok do not die. Um, I know that it does state in the scripture that Korok and his household is swallowed up. That is absolutely so. But the sons of Korok actually do live and they declare the glory of God by writing mon many versions of the Psalms. Uh, the, the most noteworthy of which is Psalms 91, written by the sons of Korah. It's also um, <laughs> the telltale sign that someone, uh, the thing that Korah had disputed and sought after in his complaint against Moses could have been his by just divine alignment because that's exactly what his sons become they become uh the great leaders of choral and orchestral music for the tabernacle mm. so there was more to his leadership had he just sought hashem for the guidance and the appointment so his sons now take on that leadership uh and they become doorkeepers custodians writers of the psalms and the praise that are to be sung in the tabernacle I think that's a very good way to end it. A lot of times we get disgruntled and dissatisfied because we think I'm made for more. God put me on this earth for more. What is it? And you think it's in what someone else is doing. When, like you said, if you seek Hashem's face and sometimes the answers don't come nearly as quickly as we would like. And that's also another thing, being patient. You find where you're supposed to make your contribution and you find that peace and that joy where you find that sweet spot, you run your lane, you know, whatever the phrase is. But it all comes back to being tied and knitted into Hashem and his way of doing things versus what I see someone else doing and thinking that's my place. We all have our own gift to make known before the world and it's not what someone else is doing. We're not called to be a copy of anybody else, just a full representation of who God made us to be. So with that... I just wanted to say, uh, I said Psalms 91. I'm not certain if that was accurate, but there are a list of Psalms. I just wanted to read this list that I just uh, found. All right. Psalms 42, mm. uh, Psalms 44 through 49, Psalms 84 through 85, Psalms 87 through 88 mm. are all uh, attributed to the sons of Korah. Pretty cool. With that, we say shalom. Shalom, y'all.